morning, everybody. It's good to be back with you. Feels like forever. So we're going to be in. Uh, it's going to be a little overlap here in the passages that were just preached, but we're going to basically be looking at uh, John three thirteen through twenty one, and that will bring us really to the end of this little section, and then I will. John the Baptist is going to reappear, and we're going to see um, how that works with uh, with chapter four, with the woman at the well, and that probably uh, two weeks from now. So, uh, let's uh, join me, if you will, in prayer, and ask the Spirit to be with us and, and work among us. Uh, Father, thank you for this time. We, we do pray that uh, you, uh, by your Spirit, would be at work in our midst, that you would do great things, and and uh, we pray, Father, that uh, you would uh, help me as I uh, seek to make this text clear and, and the meaning of it. And we just, uh, we just pray that uh, you'd help us as we seek to understand, to love you more, and to uh, be better able to walk and to live uh, in the light. And, uh, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. John 3, 13 through 21. No one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And some texts, I'll come back to this in a, a bit, some texts say, who is in heaven? And uh, this particular manuscript, uh, the manuscript of most modern versions will have just the Son of Man, and they'll leave out who is in heaven. Uh, the King James, the New King James will have who is in heaven. And we'll talk about that in just a, a bit. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whoever believes in him will have eternal life. For in this way God loved the world, that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send his Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten son of God. This is the judgment that the light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. As we approach this passage, we must look back at the beginning of the book, the book of John, and look at some key terminology that will help bring out the meaning of this present passage. We saw that in chapter one, John was framing and is framing Jesus's coming and ministry as nothing less than new creation, with the new light of the world entering into it. So recall in Genesis 1-3, the first act of God's creating is to say, let there be light. And so this key word, light, uh, we're going to see in our text today, recurring again, he's picking back up on this theme of new creation. God, the word of God, the very wisdom of God, has been enfleshed in Jesus, taking upon himself the very flesh of humans. He has descended from heaven, God's dwelling place, and the place from which he rules in order that he might bring light into the world. That is, that he might begin new creation. 
that he himself might be the light of the world, the light of the new creation that is now beginning with his arrival. In our text today, we should note that we have several themes that reemerge in different clothing. One that has been covered already, not in these terms, but it is the theme of, of healing. The healing that comes through the affliction itself, like venom used as anti-venom. John has essentially claimed, in the words of Jesus himself, that it will be through a lifting up of the Son of Man, that is, through his death, that something will happen, though he has not told us what yet. From reading ahead, we might discern that death itself is going to be brought under his control, rendered powerless and defeated through this lifting up of the Son of Man. Thus, through death, death is undone. Its power taking, taken, and new life then begins. This is true healing, like the serpent being lifted up to solve the problem of the serpent's bite. The goal of this healing, he says it twice in, uh, in 15 and 16, the goal of this healing through death is eternal life, literally the age life, that is the life of the age to come. For you Greek students in here, zoein, ionion, zoein, this means life, and some have translated it eternal, but it's, it actually means the age, life of the age. This is life of the age to come. This is the goal, sometimes written in shorthand as just life. Remember this also from chapter one. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. That is the light that men receive by receiving him. Now, this goal has often been misunderstood, the goal of life, as I misunderstood it for so long. And I can't. I can't really stress this enough. It's extremely important that we understand exactly what he means by life in this book, because he's on and on about it. Read 1 John as well. 1 John is the same way. He's on and on about life. In him was life, and uh, he is the light of the world. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, etc. cetera. Uh, he constantly is mixing these terms. But if we fail to see what he means by life, we will fail to understand what John is getting at in this whole book. So what is eternal life? Is it simply living forever, as is often taught and implied, that is living forever with God? It certainly is, but that's not all it is. It is certainly being with God forever, but that is the connotation, not what it denotes. Much like going to the beach connotes that you will be driving in a car, to get there, but it denotes those things that you do at the beach. So we're going to the beach doesn't mean we're gonna go ride in a car to get to the beach. It means we're going to go and enjoy what is at the beach. So, so that the connotations are not the point of it. It's what it denotes that is, that is actually important. And there are lots of connotations to the, to the idea of eternal life. And one is you live forever. The other is you're with God. Okay, and these are these are very important ideas, but what he what he means by this is that you have or you have the ability to obtain the resurrection life that will that will is that characterizes 
what it will be like to live in the age to come. That is, when God raises the dead and judges mankind, he will raise some to everlasting life, that is, to the life of the age to come, the resurrection, and he will raise some to everlasting content, as Daniel says. So that when, when Jesus is talking about life, when John is talking about life, he is talking about resurrection life itself. That existence in the new age of the resurrection, when we are clothed with a body like Jesus's resurrected body, and we rule with him in that coming age on a renewed earth. It denotes that life that characterizes the life that Jesus himself has always had and the body he received when him from the dead. And, and this life will be given to those who believe in and follow Jesus. As Paul says, if we suffer with him, we will also be glorified with him. Those who partake in his sufferings will also share in his life with the glory that we have by virtue of being sons. In John, it is stated a bit differently, but it's the same idea. Those who believe, he says in 112, are sons of God, and they receive the inheritance, which is life, 3, 15, and 16, the very life of the coming resurrection. Jesus has brought the future into the present. The resurrection is something that was thought to be in the future, Jesus shows up and says, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he dies, yet he shall live. And, though he, and if he believes in me, he will never die. He has brought the future resurrection into the present. And he says, by believing in him, you can partake in that resurrected life. There is now an overlap of the ages. This present evil age is moving alongside the age to come and the age to come will eclipse it in the future. This is what is also meant by the kingdom of God. How can the kingdom of God be present in this world, and yet the world look like it is? Because they're working side by side. One is, one is going to eclipse the other. The kingdom of God will ultimately prevail, but they're both working alongside one another right now. The message, as we will see later on, is that he is undoing the death inflicted on Adam's race and giving the very life embodied in the tree of life, the tree that gives life to all who believe in him. To all who consume him, he will say, to all those who abide in him, to all those who walk in the light, life will be given. We could probably end here, but we should also note the breadth of the healing life that is given. Verse 16, for in this way, some, some will say, for so, God so loved the world. It means in this way, God loved the world, that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but will have the life of the age to come. So, or in this way, he loved what? What did he love? It doesn't just say people. The world, it says, the cosmos. Now, we might think that this simply means that God's love for people only motivated his sending of Jesus. And this is true. It is true that God loved people because, the, because people are the pinnacle of his creation. On day six, take up, they take up the most space in Genesis 1. It's the, it's the largest section, the creation of mankind, because mankind is to take over what God has begun to do in the world. They are to reign with him. They're to rule over the creation. But it denotes more than that. Part of the reason he uses world 
in this passage is that it includes both Jew and Gentile, that is, all people. Later in chapter 12, after he has raised Lazarus from the dead and people begin flocking to him, the Pharisees say, look, the world has gone after him. Immediately after this, some Greeks come looking for him. And this is a signal that this is indeed what is happening. The world is going after him. For John, yes, it is about the people, both Jews and Gentiles. But it is more than that. John is multi-layered. Remember back in chapter one that Jesus coming into the world was bringing light into the world, enlightening every man. This is a way of talking about the reversal of what happened with Adam. When mankind entered the world on that first day after the day of creation, what did mankind bring into the world? Sin and darkness culminating in death. You see the contrast? So Jesus has come into the world bringing light into the world. Adam had brought sin and darkness into the world, which led to death. God's good, even his very good creation was now soiled. The next scene of Cain and Abel show us that this is indeed the case. Death comes. Death comes to Abel. And death had been brought into the world through Adam. But it was not just the people who inherited a soiled world. The cosmos itself suffered as a result of the darkness and sin that had come into the world. And to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. The fracturing of the human calling, the human vocation to rule over the earth, of the failure of Adam to rule over the creation and reflect the image of God as king and the giver of all good things resulted in the fracturing of the creation itself. It was left in a state of thorns and thistles, of unfruitfulness. And for John and for Jesus, this huge problem, the fracturing of people and their relationships and the fracturing of the world itself as a result of Adam and his descendants, is being reversed in Jesus' coming into the world and in those who believe in him. It's why Jesus' coming and ongoing ministry through the Spirit is so much more than just the abstract saving of souls, which is a, a Platonized understanding of salvation and of humans. God is actually redeeming his whole creation through his Son, beginning in earnest as his word became flesh. It's also why your life means or can mean so much more than just eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. Or the Christian version, I'm just a passing through. This world is not my home. Just bide our time here, be good, and one day we'll make it out of this awful world into heaven. No, that is not the vision of the New Testament. It's defensive. It's not the message of John. It's not the message of any of the New Testament. The message of the New Testament is that God is redeeming creation, the cosmos, through Jesus and those who belong to him, who believe in him. And we are to be pockets of this new creation around the globe as God creates microcosms of redeemed and redeeming humanity. <coughs> God is redeeming creation, all of it. And we are the first fruits of that new creation. Our lives are, are not simply to be transformed, but they are to be transformative. 
like temples set in the midst of our communities, reflecting the presence and ruler of the creator. When we talk about living in a fallen world and the things that come upon us as humans in this fallen world, as the explanation of why bad things happen in God's good world, we are on to something indeed. But we should fill in this ambiguity, the ambiguity of this statement with a robust new creational theology from John that says, in fact, God is healing this world through his son and through his people. We share in this mission. We have to work out what this looks like in detail in our own lives, but it must indeed be worked out. It must be thought through. Thus, the breadth of God's healing mission is not simply to rescue human souls from this world, but to rescue all of creation, beginning with people from corruption. And this is motivated by nothing other than the love of God for his creation and his people. See Romans 8. See Romans 8. Everything like comes to a head in Romans 8. It's, uh, it, you wouldn't think that, that John is saying the same thing as, as Paul is, but he is saying basically the same thing. Our general expectations for living are both too high and too low. Too high in that we think the little redemptive acts don't really matter that the little things are not adding up to new creation results, but that's simply not true. The little things added up create big things. Think of what Jesus says about giving a drink of water to one of these little ones, quite a small thing, but the kingdom deeds often appear small. Our expectations are often too low as well, too low in that we think there's nothing much to life except the dreary day by day. Once again, to think in this way is to live defensively, as though we can do nothing to bring about God's redeeming, bring God's redeeming love to the world, as as though Jesus had not begun the new creation and the new age. Of course, it's true that there's a lot of darkness in the world, but that is no excuse to retreat and to cower. We are to overwhelmingly conquer, as John will say in Revelation. We are to be overcomers. To the one who overcomes, I will give. To the one who overcomes, I will give this. I will give that. We are to be conquerors. Through him who loved us, Paul says, convinced that nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Again, Romans 8, 37 through 39. Where is this to happen? Certainly not when we get to heaven. No, it's not that at all. It's to happen here. It's to happen everywhere. When is it to happen? Always. In the present tense, Paul says. We overwhelmingly conquer. Now, he's not talking about out there. In all of these things, he, he records in, eight, in, in chapter 8. In all these things, nothing will separate us from the love of Christ, the love of God, which is in Christ. Always. This is what we're to do, to conquer. In the face of darkness, be conquerors, overcomers in all these things. Now, let's move on to uh, 17 through 21. He's just explained God's mission through his only son. And now he moves not away from it, but towards a filling out of what this entails and what what this coming of the light into the world produces. Two things, really, blessing and judgment. This time he says something similar to what he said in verse 16 negatively. 
For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world through him might be saved. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten son of God. Is God's primary goal judgment, condemnation? To think so would be to know a different God than the one in the New Testament. The Son sending God seeks the world's redemption, its salvation, not its condemnation. And he is doing this through Jesus. God was in Christ doing what? Reconciling the world to himself. And he's given to us a ministry of reconciliation, Paul says. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. That's the ministry that God is doing. But of course, there is a judgment. There is a condemnation, and one can escape this judgment through believing in the one the Father sent. To believe is to be put into a state in which there is no condemnation. To not enter into this grace that is being offered is to remain in that state of condemnation. This follows from the last statement. The idea is this. One can escape the condemnation in which all humanity dwells apart from Christ. Judgment is there being treasured up until the day when God will judge the world through the Son of Man. Because this is what the Son of Man will do. He will render judgment. Indeed, this is what he does in Daniel 7. I kept looking, he says, in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a Son of Man was coming. He was not, and this can make a point here, he was not coming to earth. He was coming to the Ancient of Days. He came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom, that all the peoples, the nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. Who is the Son of Man? Who is this one who is like a Son of Man? Well, he is a king. What do kings do? They rule. What does Solomon pray for? wisdom to do what to judge the people to render judgment to render decisions on behalf of his people and against the disloyal subjects this is what kings do and so in our present text this is the judgment right the judgment that light has come into the world and men have loved darkness rather than light so jesus as the son of man when he is glorified when he is enthroned through his crucifixion he will come on the clouds of heaven to the ancient of days, and he'll be given dominion, given the right and authority to judge all the nations. And this is what John is claiming is happening in God's sending of Jesus. Verse 14, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man must be lifted up. Chapter 5, verse 27, and he gave him authority to execute judgment. Why? Because he is the son of man. That's what the son of man does. The son of man is a king and he will render judgment just like King Solomon and all other kings were to do. This lifting up, the enthronement, which will lead, Jesus, lead to Jesus being given authority to judge is the way that the son of man is exalted. Watch for this within this current book. When reading John, we must realize that he and Jesus himself within the gospel, will sometimes speak 
I don't mean to use this term to sound smart. It's the only term that I know that, that captures what's going on, proleptically. He will speak proleptically. What this means is that he will speak in the gospel, in the present, as if what's going to happen in the future has already come to pass. So this is why he says in the previous verse that I just read, and he gave him authority to execute judgment because he is the son of man. Jesus comes, and in most of the gospel, he says, I'm not judging anyone. I don't judge. I don't judge. Here in John 5, 27, it says, and he gave him authority to execute judgment because he is the son of man. He's speaking about what will be the case when, when Jesus is exalted, when he is enthroned, when he goes to the Father and is exalted to the right hand. This lifting up, this enthronement will lead to Jesus being given authority to judge. He speaks in the present as though what is to be true in the future is already true. Judgment will be given to the Son of Man when he is exalted, lifted up, and resurrected. But Jesus and John speak of this as though it were already true within the gospel in anticipation of his obedience to the Father's plan. John is living on the other side of this. He's writing it from Jesus' resurrection. This way of speaking is perhaps why we get the deletion of who is in heaven that we're talking about in verse 13 in this passage. He is speaking as though Jesus is already exalted to the right hand and he is enthroned in heaven. Because if you look at the book of Acts, that's where he is. So when he is resurrected, he ascends. Where is he? He's at the right hand. Why? Because he's been exalted as the son of man. So John in 313 no man has ascended up to heaven, but he who came down from heaven, even the son of man who is in heaven, makes perfect sense in that light. Someone not understanding that, that John is speaking in this proleptic way deletes it. He says he's not in heaven in the course of this book. And so, but, but I, think it, I think it should be there. I'm old fashioned in that way, but I think that's, I think that's the rationale for it. Someone comes along and says, well, in the story, he's not in heaven. So this, this is a typo. I mean, this is a, an extra addition. We should delete this. And they delete it. Some, some scribe goes home and says, fix that up today. Right? And, but I think, I think it should be there. So you probably won't see it in most of your versions, including the ESV and the NASB and, and all that. But the older ones will have it. Okay. So here, the anticipated rule of the risen Messiah is anticipated and spoken of from a post-resurrection point of view. Now back to our text. Those who do not believe in the Son and obey him, he's going to say later on, will find themselves outside of God's grace, such that God's wrath is actually abiding on that person. Chapter 3, verse 36. He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life, he says, but the wrath of God abides upon him. Hebrews 2.3, how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? After it was first spoken through our Lord, it was confirmed to us by those who heard. That's a heavy load to carry. Now, what is the base, basis of this judgment that is, already, uh, that is already on those who do not embrace Jesus? Verses 19 through 21, this is the judgment, he says, that the light has come into the world. And men love the darkness rather than the light, because their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light, 
and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. Here we come to a somewhat confusing dilemma. John seems to be saying that men love darkness because their deeds are evil. We would expect him to say the opposite, or at least I did. Uh, we would expect him to say that because they love the darkness, their deeds were evil. In other words, their, their deeds would come from their love of something, right? That's what we would expect. And I think he does say that later on. But uh, we, would, we would expect that the deeds would arise out of the heart and not the heart arising out of the deeds. What we love is manifested in the deeds we do, right? We hear that a lot. We, we know that to be the, the, the truth as well. It is certainly true. Jesus himself says it in Matthew 15, 19 and Mark 17, 21. But that's not what John says here, at least not yet. The, deed, the deeds seem to be the cause of their love of darkness rather than the light. What's going on here? First, we should note that judgment is coming in the future because people have rejected Jesus, the, the very light of the world. This is clear. And people who hear and don't believe are living with condemnation and guilt hanging over them. They have rejected the new creation signified by the light of the new creation coming into the world. They're choosing to remain in the old creation, the old age, this present evil age. And this old creation, this old age is characterized by evil deeds. Secondly, it is often true that though we can talk about the condition of the heart producing deeds, deeds often have the power to change what we love. We all know this from experience. Addictions are this way, as are many pleasures that we seek. Do them enough and you begin to love them more and more, such that you will make an idol out of it if you can. This is the way deeds work. Deeds produce loves. Do them enough and you'll begin to love them more and more. And here Jesus, John, says that the deeds that people do lead them into a love of darkness. It's a truth and a warning. We must be careful with our deeds, lest they begin directing the things that we love. To end this section, he draws this out a bit more in 20 and 21, as evidenced by the, the word for in verse 20. Men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For, and this is the explanation, everyone who does evil hates light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. Anybody remember doing things as a kid or as an adult for that matter, where you look over your shoulder so that you won't be found out? I think we all do. Uh, so we're basically concealing. We're not wanting something to be revealed. But you just know, you know, or you knew that someone was about to discover what you were doing. But you loved it so much that you covered it up anyway. Now, that's not exactly what's going on here. But that's the, that's the way things, that's the way things work within our world, within our minds. Uh, it reflects the underlying darkness-light struggle that we have all had. 
where we held on to and hid something that we didn't want brought into the light of exposure. John uses the language of light and darkness to describe two scenarios. In one scenario, a person, upon hearing the truth about Jesus, considers his deeds, and because those deeds hold him fast in their grip, does not come to the light, lest they be exposed, and lest he has to give them up. Lest they be exposed to the light, that they are not done with a good conscience toward God. Specifically here, the deeds are those deeds that prevent one from acknowledging who Jesus truly is and obeying him as Lord. But they can be generalized as well. This truth works on both levels. The deeds and the deep love of the deeds result in a love of darkness. These are preventing him from coming for exposure and cleansing. In the other scenario, one comes to, comes to the light, bringing his life, his deeds into the exposing light of the truth about who Jesus is. And it's that aspect of exposure, I, said, I, I think, that, that John is bringing out here. A kind of laying one's life, the deeds, the total of the life, all out so that they can be seen for what they are and exposed and dealt with. It's impossible to come to the light without a manifestation occurring. And perhaps here John is thinking about Nicodemus, who had come to Jesus by night. Why? Why did he come by night? Why not in the daytime? He did not want to be exposed, right? His deeds, his deeds of recognizing Jesus for who he was would be brought out into the open. This requires making oneself vulnerable and opening open to the purifying light of Jesus's gaze. There's a certain irony in that God knows all the deeds and all of the loves, and yet we humans seek to hide them from him in darkness. Like think of Adam, he's over, he's hiding from, from God who knows it all and uh, thinks he's going to successfully do that, right? So, but he comes seeking it. And that's, and that's the beauty of it, is that God is the one who comes and seeks us out. But it's impossible to come to the light without a manifestation occurring. <clears throat> it's no coincidence that much wickedness is done at night. I mean, you think about what happens in the world. When does, when does ungodliness typically happen? It happens at night. I mean, of course, it happens in the daytime, but like it's something built into the world that the whole fabric of the world is built in terms of light and darkness, and the light leads people to, uh, to wait until darkness to do evil deeds. Coming to the light, there must be coming clean, if you will. Like Jacob, we wrestle for a blessing, only to be given the blessing when we confess who we really are. Genesis, this is a fabulous little story. And it's often overlooked in, um, in what, it, what it means, what it actually means. Uh, in Genesis 32, 26, the angel uh, who is wrestling with, with Jacob says, uh, let me go for the day is breaking. Jacob has a hold on him. And, and uh, Jacob then says, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And so he said to him, what is your name? Where does that come from? What's the purpose of that? And he said, Jacob. And then he changes his name. He says, your name shall no longer be Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and, and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him and said, 
please tell me your name. But he said, <laughs> so why is it that you ask me? You won't tell him his name. And then he says, and he blessed him there. What's going on? One thing that God requires is openness, a constant exposure to the truth about who he is and about who we are. When one comes to the light, when one does the truth, John says there are two things that happen. The deeds are exposed and the deeds are manifested as having been wrought in God. So when Jacob says, my name is Jacob, this is hearkening back to what he said to his father. What did he, when his father asked him his name, where did he say, who did he say he was? I'm Esau, your son. It was not until he said he told the truth about who he was that he could be radically changed. And, and he was from that moment on. And, and he's given a sign. He walks with a limp from that moment on. And he, so he remembers who he is. Right. So many of us could testify to that painful yet purifying moment and process. But here he seems to leave out the transformative process that many of us have experienced when we came to the light. What if, you might ask, I come to the light of the truth, I come to Jesus, and I find out that my deeds haven't been wrought in God. What happens then? Is there exposure without clearing? Discovery of an evil conscience without the cleansing of the conscience? Absolutely not. The amazing thing about coming to Jesus is that transformation happens. Hebrews 9.14 says that the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, will cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. And again, Hebrews 10.22, let us draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. God won't leave us exposed and defiled. If we draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, taking him at his word, that the blood of the cross will cleanse our conscience. He will receive us and he will cleanse us. Bank on that cleansing and take that risk. It may be a process, but it will happen. God chastens those he receives as sons, and no son is without discipline. If you're without discipline, you're a bastard. That's what it says. You are not a legitimate child. God chastens everyone that he receives, every son. Some concerned about what people will think if they expose their lives to the burning light of God's truth will die in their sins to save themselves from a little embarrassment. If there's anyone like this here today, I ask you to lose so that you can win. I always think of a, a previous preacher that um, was preaching when I surrendered to the Lord and said, some of you out there are hanging on to the back of that pew. We're singing that. Everybody was standing for the, the hymn. And some of you are hanging on to the back of that. You better let go and lose, lose your grip so that you can win. And, and that's right. Uh, it, it's only through surrender. That moment of openness, you lay down your guns and surrender. It's only through that that one can have eternal life. It opens up a new world. Uh, the life of the age to come becomes a part of you and you a part of it. God is doing a new thing in the earth, creating through Jesus the new age alongside the old age. And we can take part in that new age by entering into it through faith in Jesus.